Welcome to Talk World Radio, a half-hour discussion of politics as if the people mattered. I'm David Swanson. This week on Talk World Radio, we're talking about refusing military service. Our guest, Charles Lenchner, is a veteran peace activist, organizer, and political campaigner. Born in the United States, he grew up in Israel, where he became an anti-occupation activist at a young age. In 1987, he was drafted into the Israeli army and subsequently refused orders and spent time in military prison. More recently, he was a co-founder of People for Bernie Sanders and today is part of the Roots Action team that publishes Progressive Hub. I also work for Roots Action. Charles Lenchner, welcome to Talk World Radio. Thanks for having me, David. Thanks for coming on. So you refused orders to take part in the Israeli occupation of Palestine in the year that I graduated from high school and was doing virtually nothing political whatsoever, and at a time when there was no BDS movement to be heard of, right? Why, why did you do it? Well, I think I'm going to interpret this as how did you become um, an anti-occupation activist? Uh, yeah. Uh, most of us did not end up refusing. I think... I think the answer in part is the fact that I was uh, 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 from a family of Americans that immigrated to Israel, and there was a certain element of Americanness that stuck with me uh, uh, from my household. Uh, just as an example, we as a family knew who Martin Luther King was, and my mother raised me to you know vigorously oppose uh, racism in the sense of you know interpersonal ugliness. Uh, we didn't talk about structural back then. So when I went through the Israeli education system uh, in high school and teachers would start to raise the issue and I was paying more attention to the news, uh, it just struck me how flagrantly the country was racist against Palestinians. Um, and that led me down a rabbit hole of getting involved um, in uh, against racism Sort of within Israel proper, the, the 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 struggle for equality of Israel's Palestinian minority, um, and that led me to opposing the occupation and to getting involved in that fight. Um, but it, it just shouldn't surprise anyone that most Israelis don't grow up that way. Yeah, I imagine it doesn't. Uh, and and so what happens? What happened when you refused? Well, I, just sort of the the refusal process was preceded like. Folks should understand that Israel has almost always had refuseniks of one type or another. In the 50s, there were people who declared themselves to be pacifists. Um, in the 60s, you started to see um, uh, 60s and 70s, you saw people, you know, more explicitly embrace the need for Palestinian uh, rights and freedom, especially after the occupation. In the 1970s, there was a group that was... Um, noticing that the Golda Meir government was refusing to discuss peace with Egypt. Uh, this is uh, uh, before the uh, 1973 war. And they ended up drafting a letter that was called the high schoolers letter or the 12th graders letter. And that formed a kind of blueprint for young people who knew they were going to be conscripted, getting agency over their own agenda and declaring to the world, we're going to break one of the sacred cows of Israeli society, which is trusting and obeying the military. We're going to break that and try and use that to, uh, to advance our cause. Um, by the time I came around, there were people that I was able to track down or that I knew who had participated in these kinds of efforts in the past. So when I, as a young man, started to think about my impending draft 
Uh, I think it's in uh, when you're 16, you get your first call up notice and you, you know, there's a, a long, slow process in high school of adapting to the fact that you're all going into the army. And I was just racked with doubt. Like, what should I do? Should I try and get out? Should I escape to America and be a draft dodger? Like what, what was the issue at hand? And people that I knew from, from being against the occupation basically whispered in my ear, what's your goal? Uh, sir, do you want to stay clean and pure or do you want to impact society? And once that question was put in my head, I realized that it was more important that I organize other young people to do something that we could agree on than it was for me to follow my own unique path. Uh, let's just say I was discouraged from becoming a snowflake early on when the word wasn't used that way. Um, and that sort of led me to to, to organize a group of mostly 12th graders who were going to be drafted the same year. And we signed a letter and we said, uh, this was to the then defense minister, Itzhak Rabin, who, who later was prime minister, basically saying, we care about Israel. We care about democracy. We care about the future of our society. And we think that the occupation is incompatible with a good future. For that reason, we're letting you know that if you ask us to do actions that support the occupation while we're soldiers, we will be forced to refuse for reasons of conscience. Um, that happened just a few months before we released the letter uh, just a few months before the Intifada broke out. So in a sense, it was good timing. Um, Charles, you say a group of people that 10, 100, what? The first letter that was published had 16 names. But by the time our sort of uh, generation was done, we had hundreds of people signing documents, you know, saying that they would refuse. Needless to say, most of the young people who signed that document did not refuse. Most of the people of the original 16 did not refuse. But it helps to understand that in Israeli society, even the verbal act of saying you might refuse is already such a breaking of consensus, a uh, 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 rejection of uh, political convention, that it's still meaningful. And many of those that you might not consider to be refuseniks, they, um, they pursued a medical exemption to get out. They found a way to be guaranteed not to go to the West Bank or Gaza as soldiers. They were promised that if they only did basic training in the West Bank, then they'll be allowed to not serve in the West Bank later on. Um, all these different methods together constitute gray refusal, which is always much larger than the explicit, you know, uh, folks like like myself. Um, but in the end, like folks need to understand, it's not as though there's this big, large, vibrant, you know, refusenik camp sending lots of people to prison and glory. This was, this was and is a very small part of Israeli society that has struggled for decades to, uh, you know, to leave, to leave its mark on the scene. Um, and given the situation today, I think it's interesting to sort of ponder what was that impact in the end. And, and so did you refuse on day one of being in the military or did you wait until they ordered you to do something in particular. You were okay with being part of a mass murder operation, but not if it was in a particular geographic area or what? I love the way you phrase that. Uh, and I'm gonna answer your question, but I, but I wanna say in the period before we signed the letter and released it and got drafted, there was a period of intense wrestling with these questions, like the one that you asked, just really intense. That included things like, 
bringing 25 of us to the to the a professor of philosophy uh, in Jerusalem to listen to arguments about conscientious objection and how that fits in with Jewish and Israeli you know past practice and so on like it was really intense and one of the things we understood was that anyone who supports the military or the state of Israel is in some sense complicit in the crimes that are done in our name or, you know with our resources however there's no way to survive or to live in that society without being complicit at times. So the question wasn't, you know, are we going to be pure by taking this act? The question was, what is the most effective political intervention that we can make using our status as conscripts to be? And in when you think about like what it's going to take for Palestinian liberation, I would argue one of the most important objectives to get there is to divide Israeli society as opposed to uniting it. And the occupation is a, is a fault line because even though many Israelis are active supporters of the occupation, most Israelis do not have intense material or spiritual like interest in maintaining it. It's maintained because there's a minority that wants it and will fight for it and a majority that doesn't care enough to do much about it. Um, so in that sense, our refusal was specifically about actions committed in Gaza or the West Bank, in my case, in East Jerusalem as well. Someone in our group could have said, I'm not going to the Golan Heights, or, or I'm also going to not go into Lebanon, which we were, you know, lightly occupying a bit of at the time. But we left this up to people to make their own decision. Um, at all times, we honored the choices of the individual rather than seeing uh, their participation as like a license for us to tell them what they should be doing. We're speaking with Charles Lenchner, who refused Israeli military orders in 1987. Uh, and so again, Charles, what did they do? They put you in prison and what was that like? Let me set the scene for you. Um, uh, on my, I think my third day in the army is when everyone at the induction base is put on buses. Matt, just like a sea of buses in this dirt field and everyone's being boarded. And of course, all these new soldiers, who, you know, we have most of us, even if we have siblings and you know, we're in the army, like we're excited and nervous and scared and not sure what's going to happen next. We're being loaded onto buses and no one really knows where these buses are going, obviously to basic training, but you don't know what. And I remember sort of making sure I was one of the last people onto my bus and trying to whisper to the sergeant. Hey, uh, can I talk to you for a second in the corner, you know, whatever. And of course, being drill sergeants with new recruits, they were like, no, get on, get on the bus. You know, why are you talking to me? And all that. <laughs> so finally, I was like, I really need to talk to you. So, you know, I go aside and I was like, did you hear about those people who were going to refuse to serve in the West Bank? And he's like, yeah. And he laughed. And I looked at him. I was like, I'm one of them. Where's this bus going? <laughs> And at first he, was, he couldn't believe it. Remember, there's only one. And the national media had discussed openly that it was me. So they were like, my name was in literal newspapers that soldiers were reading during this time. Um, but it turned out I was one of a small number of buses taking us to a training base in the Negev Desert, not in the West Bank. It really was and is rare for that to be the case. Um, but that's how I avoided starting it off that way. But later on, um, uh, I was asked to participate in a in what they call a security patrol, where they take you know they take people and say, "Go beef up the folks over there, you know, walk with them." 
um, and the location was uh, was East Jerusalem. Um, and I told my officer, I, you know, he he was he was a responsible, nice officer. And I want to say, like, even though he put me in prison, like, I don't really hold it against him. Um, but he, the first time, he basically gave me a permission to hide in the tent of my base while everyone else went to do this work. And this, again, was not that uncommon. Like, this is something that people did to avoid, like, who wants to be in the spotlight on either end of this? No one really. Um, and we had long conversations. He sort of took off his, you know, he was like, okay, you can, you can talk to me. And he tried to persuade me and tell, like, he sincerely tried to win me over to participating in these activities. Um, little did he know I had spent two years training to, <laughs> to have those conversations. Um, but, uh, the second time we were ordered to do that, um, he came to me and he said, listen, we have to do this thing again, but I can't let you stay back. I was like, what happened? He's like, well, I just realized that if you finish what we're doing here and I never like punish you for violating orders, you're going to do it again in the next place. And they're going to ask, how come you did, how come this is the first time? What happened before? And he was like, and I don't want, I don't want to be your fall guy. Like, I don't want to get in trouble for protecting you. So that's basically, you know, the reason why you should know that if you refuse, you're, you know, it's not going to end well for you. We all go to this uh, border police base in East Jerusalem, a very like, uh, you know, occupied part of East Jerusalem, but the soldiers there would go out to the old city, to the Shuafat refugee camp, to other parts of East Jerusalem, and basically, you know, maintain order. The border police are a particularly brutal and disreputable part of the Israeli armed forces. Um, and <laughs> I sort of had to go in order to refuse because it just didn't, it didn't make sense to refuse to just go with my unit to the base. I was going to refuse to do the actual stuff. So, right. you know, that Friday, uh, the officer, you know, looked me in the eye, pretended not to remember any of our conversations, ordered me to go somewhere. And I'm standing with like the rest of my unit. And I'm like, uh, sir, you know, that thing. And he's like, you know, speak up. What? I was like, no. Officer, I will not, you know, like, officer, I am refusing. Officer, I think you know what I'm talking about, officer. Because, <laughs> like, he totally did. And right. I had to spend the weekend uh, doing unpleasant KP duty and listening to all the other soldiers who were doing, like, this was new to them, brag and, uh, and excitedly talk about what they had done that day in service to occupying Palestinians. And then when we yeah. get when we got back to the base, I was sentenced to a month in uh, in prison. And, and that was it. After a month, you're done. Well, no, because after you finish with the month, they spit you back out into your service. It's not like they're going to kick. They don't want to kick you out. They they didn't want to kick me out of the army for two reasons. The first was that they there's a part of the military character, at least then, that was like we are a good institution for wayward young people you know, young men who've lost their way. So if we think that you're sketchy, we're going to do everything in our power to make sure you finish your military service because we think it's an important foundation for productive life as a citizen. That's real. And then the second part was, oh, he, he would like to be kicked out? Hell no. 
<laughs> not going to do that. So um, I was spat back into the army, floated around various ways. It's sort of like, um, you know, missing a lot of school at the beginning of the year. Once I had done what I did, it was hard for me to find my place as a soldier. Um, anyone who's a veteran, like, knows what that process looks like. I never completed it, didn't have it, had a terrible year in prison, and ended up refusing uh, one more time, um, which means I got to experience, like, all, both of the two military prisons where they keep soldiers. So month in prison or a year in prison? A month, two months, two separate sentences of four and five weeks in prison. Total yeah. time in the army was a year. And eventually I, I was successful in getting myself kicked out at long last. Congratulations. <laughs> um, so, so did, I mean, there is, I don't know if there's more resistance in the Israeli military now than then, but I know there's, there's more resistance in other ways to the occupation, uh, especially outside of Israel than there was then. What, what do you think uh, you accomplished and how do you look at the, the tactic of refusal, refusal of militaries around the world, not just the Israeli military? Is it a, is it a useful tactic? One of the ways that it's useful is that participating in that organizing process and being in the spotlight and doing what I had to do, it cemented me as a lifelong activist, sort of like no matter what um, yeah. political defeats I may encounter, uh, ain't nothing you can do to me that's like being put in the isolation ward in a prison built a long time ago. <laughs> like. There's a clarity of purpose uh, that, that comes out of those experiences that's that's been with me. But that's a personal, that really is a personal benefit. In terms of the impact yeah. on Israel, let alone the Palestinians, I think, I think I'm basically in a wait and see attitude. Like, I don't want to discourage anyone from doing it. I don't want to knock myself. But the direction of Israeli society since the time, since when I did that and where it is today, I, I look at one dynamic. We thought that there was a oppressive, brutal um, regime of occupation that most Israelis passively supported, but would be happy to get rid of if only we could like advance the diplomatic peacemaking process far enough along. And the Oslo years proved many things. One of the things that they proved was that there's a major part of society, including generals and Zionists and people who you might have considered, you know, very militaristic, who are like, you know what, we should totally give this peace thing a shot. It's easy to say, oh, but look what happened. It was all a ruse, you know, blah, blah. like, I don't know who specifically was plotting this out, like some sort of chess master. My impression at the time was that Many Israelis, including very people in the elite, were enthusiastic about figuring out a way to end the conflict and sincerely wanting it to be a, a, a place where Israelis and Palestinians could meet in the middle, whatever that meant. Refusing then was, was putting your shoulder to that wheel that had you know, some kind of a, a, a future that, you could, that was tangible. Today, things are much worse. Israeli society has, to a large extent, uh, decided that peace and the Palestinian issue are not a priority. Once they, once they mostly solved the security problem uh, and stopped buses blowing up in Tel Aviv, they managed the occupation in such a way as to maximize the benefit to settlers. 
um, minimize the damage to Israel from, you know, the rest of the world and from the Arab world. Um, and, you know, kind of didn't want to worry and think about it too hard. In today's environment, you know, refusing attracts attention. But the, the part of the left that it's part of is further away from Israeli society, from the mainstream of Israeli society than it was in my day. At least that's, that's my assessment. There's a, yeah. there's a slightly larger group further in the margins, really thinly populated space, you know, on the, the left end. And then Israeli society is like center right fascist. 1987, uh, finishing high school, having no clue what to do, not resisting any militaries or doing anything useful. I went to Italy to be an exchange student, and my friends in Italy were all getting ready. They were, they were going to have to do a year in military so-called service. Italy doesn't do that anymore. From 87 till now, a lot of countries have dropped that. Uh, as you know, an antiquated barbaric institution. Uh, should they? Uh, I, I mean, and, and conscription, the draft, draft registration, the United States is working on expanding it to women is a, some sort of feminist progress. But most countries have been dropping that. Um, conscientious objection. Some countries, Germany, got it in the Constitution. You can do it, right? Uh, I mean, is, is this the way we should be going? Or, you know, where where's Israel and the United States on this? Well, I think it's complicated. Um, there's actually something really beneficial to, a, to, a, to an all-draft conscript army. And that is that what happens to soldiers is being felt by the entire society. If you're fighting a war in Vietnam... And a large portion of, you know, Americans have to go there, have relatives there, then the impact of their deaths and, and what they what they're like when they come back is, is really visible. If you compare that to, say, the United States and Iraq, the number of troops uh, overall is fairly small. The number of troops doing active service is relatively small. The number of casualties is minuscule by historic standards. That gives the the that gives the country that gives the military enormous flexibility to do things that they would not do if there was a genuine people's army. In, and, and yet, Charles... So, so in Israel, I just want to say, in Israel, one of the benefits of a draft is refusal. It is the existence of the draft that makes refusal a tactic that people can engage in if there was just... Uh, and there's people in Israel who say this would be a good idea. There are folks who wish we were more like the U.S. military. They think... What could we get done if we had smaller number of soldiers who were better trained, better compensated, and could basically do whatever, you know, do more things with less, um, less problems if there was no draft? So counter argument, tell me what you think. The, the United States' very worst, deadliest wars, civil war, the world wars, the war on Korea, the war on Vietnam, Laos, Cambodia, uh, have had a draft. The draft didn't stop them. Uh, the war on Southeast Asia killed at least six million people. None of the wars, singly, no single war since then by the United States, uh, possible exception U.S. Uh, you know involvement in a war in Congo, has killed anywhere close to that number of people. Uh, so does it make sense to actually want draft registration and a draft to be in place 
to have a slightly bigger peace movement in a certain way in order to facilitate something the military is just drooling over, and that's the ability to do vastly more damage than they can do without the draft. If you didn't have conscription in Israel, you wouldn't have resistors to conscription in Israel. I get it. But would you have the occupation? Well, I want to first I just want to address the bit about the U.S. because we're, we're comparing Israel and, and, and uh, the United States, very different situations. The U.S. is, is, a, is an imperial hegemon with footprints around the world. And anything connected to our defense needs is hypothetical since we don't actually have any external enemies at our borders who are prepared to like do damage to, you know, to our national. In what, what are they going to come from? Mexico, Canada? Like it's a say, it's not like that. Uh, and things are different in, in most other countries. Um, but I feel like um, the problem of war in the modern era is much more about the media and mass uh, shaping public opinion and uh, elites figuring out what's in the best interests uh, uh, for themselves. And for them, having um, other ways to engage in conflict has been a real win. You've got sanctions, you've got cyber warfare, you've got diplomatic pressure, you've got trade, you know, uh, treaty op uh, opportunities. All of these other measures have killed millions of people. Like just thinking about like the way that a swing in commodities prices can like cause hunger and, and you know, kill a lot of people. Um, or the sanctions we did in Iraq before, you know, between the first and, and second Gulf Wars. Um, those things have been devastating and they've reduced the need for the kind of warfare that the U.S. saw in, in Southeast Asia. We didn't need to invade Chile. We installed a military dictator or at least assisted in that process. That process has meant that the significance of conscription is different than it was, you know, 50 or 100 years ago. Um, whereas the, 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 to me, the real problem of imperialism of the war machine is all the ways that powerful countries can oppress others without actually having to invade or use large numbers of troops. And that, that threat which I know you're, you know, you're very aware of, to me, it overshadows the significance of conscription. Um, uh, but, you know, obviously peace activists should pick the terrain that they're most comfortable, you know, fighting on. And as long as there's going to be conscription or even volunteer, like the U.S. has volunteer soldiers, they still refuse. It's never going to end. Sure. <laughs> but the U.S. military is intent on getting draft registration expanded to women. And the fact that we all don't think it's important and most people in the United States don't even know it's happening, uh, it doesn't necessarily convince me it's entirely unimportant or they wouldn't be doing it. <laughs> but uh, Charles Lencher, with a, about a minute left, uh, what do you recommend uh, to people going forward? What have you what have you learned in in 60 seconds of wisdom? Well, I would say international solidarity is incredibly important. Whoever's running a camp, whoever's refusing or, or uh, conscientious objector status, you know, whatever that is, these people are often very alone and isolated in their immediate environment. And look for those people, uh, help them, support them. I think that's incredibly meaningful. And like you're doing today, David, sharing their stories, normalizing it, making it seem possible for more and more people in the future, that's definitely a way to reduce the threat of war. Um, but if just in case you end up being drafted somewhere, remember, you can always say no.
Right on. Very well said. We've been speaking with Charles Lenchner. He refused Israeli military orders back in 1987. We'll have a link to articles he's written at talkworldradio.org. Charles works at Roots Action and Progressive Hub. Charles, thank you very, very much for coming on Talk World Radio. Thank you. This is Talk World Radio. I'm David Swanson. Take action at rootsaction.org. Help end war at worldbeyondwar.org. Read or listen to today's Peace Almanac entry at peacealmanac.org. All past shows can be heard at talkworldradio.org. Talk World Radio is produced in Charlottesville, Virginia, and syndicated by Pacifica Network. There is no way to peace. Peace is the way.